if we go back to the beginning, Pat, now just let me read this through, and then I'm going to ask if we'll sing it again. And then I want to ex explain something to you. Faithful one, so unchanging, ageless one, you are my rock of peace. Lord of all, I depend on you. I call out to you again and again. I call out to you again and again. You are my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. Just before the meeting, meeting this morning, Mark came to me and asked me if we could remember his father this morning. And this is about what we're about to do right now. Mark's father has gone into the hospital with a brain aneurysm. And the family, of course, are very concerned. And there's a meeting, I think you said this afternoon, around 2 o'clock, and the family, and they're going to make decisions and so on and so forth. And Mark has asked if we would pray for his father, bring him before the Lord. And when this, uh, and I said to Mark, uh, we'll certainly do that, and we'll do that. I don't know exactly when, but we'll do it this morning. And when you were singing this earlier, I kind of reason I walked in, I was contemplating just kind of doing it then. I want, I want us to sing this, and then we'll pray for Mark's father. But the words of this, the words of this, let's, let's sing it, let's sing it, and we'll pray. Faithful one, so unchanging, ageless one, you're my rock of peace, Lord of all, I depend on you. I call out to you again and again. I call out to you again and again. You are my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. Now let's just unite our hearts together in prayer. We pray in the authority of Jesus' name. His name represents his person. So we pray in his person. And it's his idea that we come to the Father in his person and ask the Father for those things that we need. And so, Father, we come to you now in Jesus' authority, in the name of the only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth. And we come to you on behalf of Mark, who is come to us this morning and ask for his father. His father is going through a crisis, and so we bring him to you, Father God. We ask for your touch. We ask for your presence. We ask for your intervention. We ask you to do those things that only you can do. We ask that your perfect will would be done. 
for Mark's father. We ask for that you would give great peace to the family. We ask that you would comfort Mark in this time of difficulty and trial. And so we commit Mark's father and all of his circumstance and all those who attend him and all the medical intervention and all of the family interaction and discussion we present it in Jesus' name, Father God, to you and ask for you to take it into your hands. Again, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to change my thoughts with you this morning. Uh, not that I'm going to change them, but I'm going to, I mean, it's, just, it's a real change here. So we'll just very reverently make a, make a little change, a little transition. I want to... I want to recognize some of the events that are about to occur in the week that lies before us, just in a few days as we come to Friday of this coming week. We come to the inauguration of the 45th President of the United States of America. His name happens to be a name that no one thought seriously would ever be the name that would be mentioned. Uh, his name is Donald J. Trump. So Donald Trump is about to become the 45th President of the United States January the 20th, which will be Friday. He will be inaugurated. My thoughts went back to four years ago when President Obama was inaugurated for his second term, January the 21st, 2013. My thoughts went back because the morning of that day, there was a prayer breakfast on the day of the inauguration, there was a prayer breakfast in Washington, and Jonathan Kahn gave an address. And we were privileged to observe this address. Subsequently, as time went on, we watched it here. I showed it to you here. And this morning, in a little bit, I'm going to show you a portion of that again. I find, in retrospect, looking back, it's very interest interesting to look at some of the words that were used and that were conveyed that day in terms of the events that have unfolded since then. Now, there is a titanic struggle. Is just a, the word titanic, of course, whenever we want to describe something immense and gigantic and extraordinary, we use the word titanic. And so there is a titanic struggle underway now, and that is between um, forces of progressivism in the Western world United States of America and throughout Europe and throughout all the Western world, there is a, a movement that has been, of course, in existence for hundreds of years, but has, uh, in the last few decades, has uh, surfaced in an extraordinary way. We have talked uh, at length here about uh, secular humanism and various humanist manifestos, and we go back for years, and we have read from time to time the tenets of Humanist Manifesto 1, 2, 3, and so on. And we've talked about the belief system attached to the humanist movement, secular humanism. And progressivism is a word that has been used more recently. But there is a titanic struggle now that's underway because progressivism was making such great advances and gains. Political progressive, uh, progressivism was making um, tremendous gains President Barack Obama, of course, there's no question, he promoted much of the agenda and goals of progressivism. 
the, uh, the influence of the United States in the world is, is great. And, of course, the movement of progressivism in Europe, of course, is extraordinary as well. A lot of the things that we see happening today that we scratch our heads and say, why, how, why, why do people think this way? Why are they doing the things that they are doing? Uh, for example, you could even talk about border issues and the issues of people coming across borders and the idea of international borders and things. Of, well, the, the idea of progressivism factors in to this, the ideology of it, deals with this kind of thing of borders and people being free to move throughout the earth unrestricted by borders and all of these kinds of things. So I'm not going to get deep into it other than to say this morning that we are in a great struggle here and the inauguration of a president that has come upon the scene, president-elect who has come upon the scene, very unusual circumstances, very unusual person and personality. Much of his personality we don't understand. And we scratch our heads with regards to a lot of things he does. And why does he do these things? And surely, surely a person who acts the way he does and says the things from time to time that he says has got to be a loose cannon. And how could he ever be president of the United States of America? And so people struggle with all of these things trying to understand what it is. But I want to say this to you. And I say this with some assurance this morning. Whatever we make of President Trump or Donald J. Trump, and I don't, quite frankly, don't know what to make of a great deal of it. And I'm not suggesting I know all that will occur in the next four years, but this one thing I do know. I do know that his election as president in the extraordinary circumstances or even Fox News, if you could say Fox News would be promoting Donald Trump, if they weren't, then no one was, then even for them to say at the highest levels behind the scenes that they put out the word that by 11 o'clock on the night of the election, passed in November, they thought that by 11 p.m. they would be able to say that Hillary Clinton would be the next president of the United States. So even a network somewhat sympathetic to him uh, was convinced that Hillary Clinton would be the next president and they would be able to call that early by 11 p.m. Well, they haven't called it by 11 p.m. And so it's extraordinary, the circumstances. Now, his election, his personality, and his style and ideology and all of these kinds of things is a tremendous barrier, obstacle, to political progressivism. There is no question whatsoever that he's come in, his coming on the scene, his, um, if it's not a detour, it's a roadblock. It's um, the, the hopes, the dreams, all the achievements have been thrown into disarray. And this is the reason why you find so many people, especially on the coasts and throughout Europe, and many people who would consider themselves to be liberal, um, progressive in their philosophy and thinking, they're in consternation and absolute panic because they know that this man will not, adv will not advance their agenda. Now, we say they know he will not advance their agenda. I don't think we can safely say we know anything with regard to what he will do. 
but it doesn't appear as if he will advance their agenda, and it appears as if he is a great threat to the political uh, progressivism throughout Western society. So this is the, t- the titanic struggle. This is the reason why you have death threats from people who have been asked to perform, sing a song, sing something at the inauguration. Okay, well, no, I, I can't. I, I'm sorry I can't. I, I receive death threats if I sing. All this kind of thing is happening. Underneath the progressivism, political movement of progressivism, is a brutality that is as brutal as Stalinism ever was. People don't admit it. They don't realize it. But it is. Let me just mention a couple of things. Progressivism is a philosophy. It's based on the idea of progress, which asserts that advancements in science, technology, economic development, and social organization are vital to the improvement of the human condition. They they put great emphasis on the idea of going by empirical evidence of things. Empirical evidence. Well, those are code words. Whenever you hear somebody talking about empirical evidence, basically that is evidence that you, that you determine to be legitimate, valid evidence. You determine that based on your observations. There's great, great emphasis placed on scientific understanding of things as opposed to understanding things from the, from the position of revelation. So by its very nature, progressivism has become adverse to biblical Christianity or the Judeo-Christian ethic because it puts no confidence. For example, it will say right out front that no one, progressivism advances the idea that no one should use Old Testament as any kind of a foundation for government. In other words, the Ten Commandments, which is the Ten Commandments is the foundation of our laws in Canada and the foundation of the laws in the United States of America and throughout much of the Western world. But progressivism does not want to attach any kind of uh, foundation to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. So it's very much anti-biblical, anti-scriptural, sorry, humanistic and so on and so forth. It puts a great emphasis on scientific and scholarly knowledge, scientific, scholarly knowledge, obtained through reason over faith, they say. We come to these conclusions based on reason over faith, uh, not realizing that reason can be darkened, reason can be enlightened. What darkens reason? What enlightens reason? The Bible talks about this a great deal. And so this is... This is the general direction of Western society, United States of America, using its influence in the world for the last number of years, progressivism. Along comes Donald Trump. It is absolutely a roadblock against it. Now, if he did not have the kind of personality that he has, and how would you describe his personality? But I just want to say to you, uh, I'm not talking as a fan. I'm just talking as an observer. If his personally, if his personality was not the kind of, kind of an ironclad kind of a personality that he has, there's no way that he would withstand this, the onslaughts. His ability to survive, 
and to keep moving forward in the direction that he has determined he's going is unbelievable. It's mind-boggling how that can be. How can someone overcome, continue to go, almost without rest and without sleep? How can someone function like that in the face of all that's opposition that's arrayed? It's an incredible thing. It's a phenomenon. I know that. And so we have this titanic struggle. And the struggle is not over. And there are many uh, who, who, of course, are endeavoring to prevent the events five days from now from occurring. And that is something that needs to be very carefully understood. It says these progressives tend to see themselves as people who believe in reform, in changing society for the better as opposed to conservatives who they believe want to keep things the same or even turn the clock back. They are socially liberal. They're favoring more rights for women, more rights for gay people, more rights for minorities. Now, the rights that they would have for gay people, um, transgendered, you know, and all these, the, the, the rights that are given to them are rights that are given by the progressive philosophy and mindset but if you were to say that you disagreed with any of that, there would be no tolerance for you. If you understand, the tolerance, that is the word tolerance that is used all the time, be more tolerant, we must be more tolerant. But that's a political agenda, tolerance in certain things. But there is no tolerance shown to those who would think differently on those matters. Especially if you came to some of those things from a biblical standpoint, standpoint or perspective, there would be absolutely no tolerance whatsoever afforded you. You would be an enemy of the state. No question about it. It's very brutal in that regard. Absolutely brutal in that regard. They believe in modernization, technological progress. They also believe in the redistribution of wealth. And we could go to great lengths, and I'm not going to, but this idea of redistribution of wealth in the progressive mentality is extraordinary, even to the point of view that they believe that the democracy should come into the workplace. Now, if any of you are in business and you, you, have, you have observed this tendency and these trends, even if you don't know what to call it, you have, re, you have observed a general trend towards the workplace becoming more democratic in the sense of you think you own it, but the idea of progressivism is you don't own it. It will be a democratic place, and you won't make the decisions there. And if your income reaches past a certain threshold, then that will be cut off there, and you will not be able to have more income than that certain amount. And the excess of that will, always, will also go to those who don't have it, because everyone has a right to it. You see, everyone has a right to housing. Everyone has a right to health. Everyone has a right to everything. Traditional beliefs was... You have a right to work for what you get. You have a right to work for it. And if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. <laughs> the scripture even says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't, he, he shouldn't eat. That's a biblical idea. But the progressives do not share any of those kinds of views. We would consider, I would consider them to be extremely radical, and yet they're becoming more and more and more mainstream so I just advance a couple of those things because this whole area has been given to much prayer 
uh, for the past number of years. And I want to go back to what Jonathan Kahn said four years ago in just a few moments, but let me just mention a couple of things before I do that. I've been, um, I love the scriptures, as you know, I love the scriptures, I love the word of God. I see in the word of God the mind of God, the mind of Christ. I see such wonderful uh, intellectual beauty and beautiful mind and, and the things that are said and the ideas as, and the way they are expressed. To me, they're lovely, beautiful. Someone came to Jesus. He was a lawyer and he came to Jesus and he asked him what the greatest command commandment in the law was and Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your you can finish it for me with all your mind you see the struggle out there I call it a titanic struggle but it's a titanic struggle for the mind the thoughts the beliefs Jesus said you should love your God with all your mind. In another place, on the road to Emmaus, it talks about, the scripture talks about uh, the, Jesus opened their minds that they would understand the scriptures. And it conveys the idea that unless your mind is opened, you can't understand it. In other words, there must be a visitation of the spirit of grace to bring enlightenment to the revelation of what God's word is and what God's commandments are what the scriptures teach. And so he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In Romans, and if you read carefully in Romans, there's a great deal all throughout Romans, Paul's letter, about this idea of the mind. In the first chapter about verse 28, Paul talked about they failed to retain, you know, talking about society of his own day. And he said they failed to retain God in their knowledge. And since they fail to retain God in their knowledge, let me ask you, this whole thing of secular humanism and progressivism, it absolutely fails to retain God in his knowledge. It just dispenses with God. And it says because of that, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is a mind that does not function well. A reprobate mind is a mind that comes to conclusions they're flawed, faulty conclusions, because the mind does not work well. The mind is designed to work as it is informed by the spirit. Every human being who thinks, thinks on the basis of information that comes from a spiritual source. People who are given over to a reprobate mind are people who think their mind, they think based on a spirit of confusion, comes from a fallen spirits, demonic sources. Those who think well, their minds are influenced by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. Again, in Romans, it says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. It also says that we should be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says you should be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, I'm saying in reading some of these things this morning and setting the stage on these things because... This is the traditional Judeo-Christian ethic, mentality, and understanding. But the titanic struggle is to overturn these things. 
Again, it tells us in Scripture in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which is was in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read just a few verses from Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'll go to chapter 1 and read from verse 12. Listen to these words. And my reason for reading these words is because Solomon, written by Solomon, son of David, wisest man, considered to be the wisest man in all the earth, was given a great gift of wisdom, riches, splendor, and all of this, but wisdom. But Solomon himself went into a period of apostasy. He fell away from the right relationship with God. Solomon did. And you, I marvel at this. How could the one who wrote most of the Proverbs, how could he actually fall away from his relationship with God? There came a time in Solomon's life uh, when he put great confidence in his own ability to understand and comprehend things based on this great intelligence that he possessed. At the conclusion of this, uh, Ecclesiastes, you'll find evidence that he has come back to the place where he is saying, that is based on revelation. It's all by revelation. It's revealed truth. It's not through truth as you understand it to be. It's not through your observation. It's not through what we would call empirical evidence, as the progressives say. It's not through empirical evidence. It's through revelation of God's truth to you. Let me read this. He says, I, the preacher who was king over Israel in Jerusalem, And I set my heart to seek and search out my wisdom concerning all that is done under the heavens. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. You know vanity means empty. It's all empty. It's all hollow. He says, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then he continues on for a great part of Ecclesiastes in that similar vein, but what he's actually saying is that that great quest that he had led him into a despondency, led him into a desperation and an anguish that there was no purpose. There's no purpose. It's all empty. It's all vanity. And I suggest to you that the so-called enlightenment of several hundred years ago throughout Europe, that those who were used most in that so-called enlightenment, which was no enlightenment at all, but it contributed towards the same kind of anxiousness, desperation and despondency, And many of those individuals committed suicide and took their own lives because they came to the place 
The same conclusion as Solomon, that it was all without purpose. There's no purpose in anything. We have not been designed to think along these lines. But the progressive movement throughout Western society has using these, using this philosophy to get power over people and to enact an agenda. But whenever they get what they've been working for, they will say it's all folly and empty and there's no purpose. The election of Donald Trump has put a halt to that. Temporarily, I don't know. It has put a halt to it. That's important. My own view is that this provides a, an opportunity. I don't think that this is something that is um, the end result, but I believe it affords an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the church to pray it's an opportunity for us to seek God on behalf of all of these things. I do not know whether what direction the society will move, but I believe that there is an opportunity that is being given now, and we will wait and see and observe very carefully. But as you wait and see and observe, I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray. I'm going to bring Jonathan Kahn. And you'll notice as he comes to this, he's talking about prayer. And as he comes to a conclusion, this is relatively short, uh, the great emphasis on prayer. But he goes into a little bit of history about inauguration. And the first part of this is the inauguration of President Washington. And that takes you back to pretty much the beginning, doesn't it? That takes you to the beginning, the inauguration of President Washington. So let's just watch this. So five days from today, five days from today, there will be another prayer breakfast on the day of the inauguration for the 45th President of the United States. I'm uh, looking forward to finding out who will be speaking at the prayer breakfast and what they will say. But I would say this. As Jonathan Kahn was calling for a president who would be sympathetic to what he's talking about, and what he's advocating. President Barack Obama was not the man to be sympathetic to that point of view. President Trump would be much more likely to be sympathetic to that point of view, regardless of the different quirks you see in his personality. There's no question that he is much more likely to be sympathetic to that point of view. We will find out. But as we approach the week that is ahead of us and the events, you will see played out before you what we're talking about here this morning, the titanic struggle. It's important to understand some of the foundations behind that struggle and why people will say the things they say, why it is that the mainstream media or most of the media will be so anti and so opposed to Trump in all the things he says and does and his agenda. They will seek to undermine and belittle him in any way that they can. He will give them lots of ammunition to do that, but that's what they will do with the ammunition that he provides. That's the way it is. But having said that, he will absolutely uh, monopolize the news coverage and he will continue to say and do and act and so on to gain the uh, focus and the attention of the news cycle. You'll see that for the next four years. 
but also you'll see this opposition played out this this uh, on the part of the progressive and all those who are a part of that, including much of the mainstream media, which are very, very progressive, the educational system, the so-called upper crust in, crust in, in education, and then the legal community, will all be very much in opposition to Donald Trump. But what will happen is he will be the one who will uh, select for approval the next uh, Supreme Court justice, take the place of Anthony uh, Scalia, and quite likely it's conceivable that he may be responsible for the appointment of maybe two or three, depending on how long a term he serves. That, by its very nature, would have a tendency towards uh, changing the view in terms of the legal view of what is approved and what is not approved. And would abortion be revisited at some point in the future? My answer to that is yes, it would be revisited. Everybody's taking comfort because they're asking these attorney generals and so on, uh, what do you think about uh, abortion and Roe versus Wade? And they're saying it's settled law. But they're not saying anything. All they're saying is that's the way the law is right now. They're not saying that they would be in favor of it being changed. They're saying... They will, I will enforce the laws as they exist right now. But for the laws to be changed, that's going to be con Congress is involved in that. And the Supreme Court will be involved in that. But uh, we, we, have, we will have an opportunity to see a great deal, possibly a great deal of what was prayed for four years ago, actually have an opportunity to be manifested and fulfilled. So stay tuned and observe, but understand the conflict. Understand the conflict. Understand that the conflict has spiritual roots to it, but that it's played out in time and space through individuals. And some of the individuals are individuals that you would not really select or think could be used in certain ways. Think outside the box a little bit and try to see that uh, oftentimes, historically, as the Lord has used an individual or, a, or even a military regime in the past, he has used ones that weren't particularly, uh, well, let me put it this way. Some of them were very rough, very crude, very tough, very fierce. And they have been used uh, historically by the Lord to bring about his purposes in the earth.